Good morning. Soldiers who fought in World War I and II, uh, soldiers who fought in um, the Civil War and the Vietnam War, they all said that their, their most awful memory was the groaning of wounded men lying on the field of battle uh, once the fighting was over. They all spoke about that. They said there, there's a low moan that comes out across no man's land. Uh, the groan of desperately wounded and crippled men whose lives are ebbing away. And they said that that, that sound above all other sounds was terrible beyond description. Is that what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in our passage this morning? Verse 20, it says, he says that the creation was subjected to frustration. And then in verse 22, we know the whole creation, that is the whole physical world, is groaning right up to the present time. That is a very interesting way to view uh, everything around us. When you and I stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon or listen to the sound of the ocean or gaze up at the snow-capped Tetons, we think instinctively that this is a magnificent place. It is. It's, it's incredibly beautiful. But Paul says that if our ears could be attuned to the right harmonic frequencies, if we could, if there was some kind of special headphones that we could put on and hear uh, this is what we would hear. We would hear nature sighing and throbbing with pain. Haven't you ever heard it before? Haven't you ever heard the groaning in the cold night's wind? Do you ever walk in the forest and feel the forest's loneliness? Do you ever stand by the ocean and uh, sense the water's agitation? When you hear the sounds of whales in the deep blue sea, do you hear longing in those cries? Well, I'm not suggesting this is the only way to look at the creation. In fact, the Bible talks about it otherwise. It says, is it Psalm 19 that says the sun, it compares the sun to a bridegroom who has just come out to meet his bride and to a strong man who's ready to run a great race across the sky. Well, I'm not saying it's the only way to talk about creation. Here Paul does. He envisions creation writhing in pain. And yet, it's a special kind of pain. If you look in verse 22, I'm kind of cheating because I'm telling you stuff before we actually read the passage. But when you look in verse 22, you see that there, my original illustration of the men you know, crying, moaning on the battlefield is, is not accurate. This is a special kind of pain. What kind of pain is he talking about? These are the groans of labor pains. The pains of a woman giving birth, which are terrible pains, but they are the most hopeful kind of pains. And that is how he describes the, the, the springtime world that we are in. All of the universe is groaning in labor pains, which means, of course, she's about to give birth. And during the season of Easter, what we do is we take time to remember the power of Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection is powerful enough not only to recreate his body and recreate our bodies, 
but it's able to remake every inch of the universe. Every single mountain, every river, every plant, animal, nebula, quasar, and galaxy. On the day of resurrection, Isaiah 55 will come true. Remember that one? The mountains and hills will burst into song and all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Let's read Romans 8 here. It's really an interesting passage because I think it's the only place in all of the Bible where these different themes come and uh, coalesce together of adoption, childhood, uh, resurrection, recreation. So let's read beginning in verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. If you have ever adopted children before, if you're an adoptive parent, it's likely that at some point in polite conversation, someone has asked you this question, uh, do you have children of your own? Do you have children of your own? Or, or do you know anything about your children's real parents? When people ask you a question like that, you know, they're not trying to offend but they are operating, operating on a commonly held assumption that there are really two kinds of kids out there. There are real ones and there are adopted ones. And adopted children are, um, so they assume, maybe a lesser status of a child. Is that what adoptive parents believe themselves? Yeah, of course not. Is that how adoptive parents feel? Not a chance. I mean, quite the opposite. Every adopted parent that I know would say that in all of their parenting, what they're trying to do is to show every bit as much love and affection and care for your adopted kids as you would your own flesh and blood. Because as far as you're concerned, there's no difference between the two of them, is there? They're all your kids. Well, so how does that uh, re relate to us? When Jesus was baptized at the age we think of about 34 in the Jordan River, there was a voice that cried out from heaven, 
What was that voice? It was the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Another way that that Greek word can be translated is this is my favorite Son in whom I am well pleased. And we say, well, of course, he's your favorite Son because he's your real Son. And then there are all of the rest of us sons and daughters, you know, adoptees, because we're different, aren't we? See, I've never met a Christian in all of my days who believed that they were loved by the Father with the same constancy and affection that the Father loves his real son, Jesus. You know, none of us believes that, do we? That we are loved with every bit as much intensity as the Father has for his son? I mean, even if we believe in the biblical doctrine of adoption, you know that you can talk to God as your Father, you, you even know that you have a spirit inside of you that cries, Abba. Even if you, you know, buy into all of that, you don't think that God is as crazy in love with you as he is with his real son, Jesus Christ. And Bradley Lawrence Cheney, my most esteemed favorite son of the universe, are words that I just never imagine hearing, and neither do you. And put your name right after uh, this. My, my favorite daughter in all of the universe. She is a, uh, an heiress. She's a co-heir with Jesus Christ. I give all of my inheritance to Jesus and equally to her. Like when you hear things like that in the Bible, you're, you're just like, really? <laughs> it, you don't believe it. You don't feel it. So here's what I would like you to do. The next time you are out on a walk or a hike or a mountain bike, or whenever you're outside, first of all, what I would like you to do is just be silent and listen. Listen and hear if you can hear the sound of creation groaning. I tried it this week, and it's actually very strange to, to try to do that in springtime because you, all you hear outside is just life. It's, you know, birds chirping and flowers and blossoms. It's, it's really strange to sit there and quietly concentrate, trying to hear the groans of creation. Once you do, and I think you will, remind yourself what you're listening to. These are labor pains that you hear. And what is it that the, what is, what are the trees and the flowers and the birds and the bees, what are they all anticipating? What are they looking forward to being birthed? Verse 19, it says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The birds, the trees, the whole creation is ready and waiting for the moment that you feel and are known as the son, of, son and daughter of God as you truly are. For that moment when you no longer feel like a second-class child, like an adoptee, but you feel all the intensity and love the father has for his son. There will come a time at the end of history when God reveals the identity of those who are truly his kids, and they will feel, they will feel this. You think about uh, at Jesus' baptism, what he felt when he heard his father call out to him, uh, the intensity of that love. How much more did Jesus feel loved on Easter Sunday morning 
when he's clothed in glory, when the Father has given him his new body. And in that same way, imagine what it's going to be like when we are similarly clothed and feel similarly loved the day that we walk out of our graves on the day of resurrection. That will be utterly fantastic. So a major theme here in Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8 I know we're kind of bouncing around in the book of Romans, and so maybe this sermon series feels a bit disjointed. But a major theme in this section is slavery. You know, many of these Christians were either slaves or former slaves. And Paul, he's writing here, and he says that all of creation is is in slavery. All of nature is in, in slavery to decay and corruption. Maybe, I don't know, is it possible? All of... Part of that slavery is the second law of thermodynamics. But the reason that creation is so anxiously awaiting for you to be revealed as the son and daughter of God, which it says in verse 19, is because it knows that, you, that they are next in line. Like Once you are clothed in glory, then they will likewise be liberated. You see, the trees want freedom. The birds, they cry freedom. Creation wants to be liberated, and it's so excited. Like, I, what I, it's kind of silly, but what I imagine the picture being like when we walk out of our graves on the day of resurrection, there are going to be rabbits or other animals. They're just going to be smiling at us, <laughs> grinning from ear to ear, because what they know is that they are next. Verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 21, for the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So then how should we respond to this? How should we respond? I I think one of the most appropriate responses we could have is simply praying A very simple prayer. Pray, Lord, open my imagination. Because one of the great sicknesses of our day, certainly one of my own personal pathologies, is the shrinking of the imagination. Isn't that true? Aren't most of us too distracted or numbed or busy to do any serious imaginative work? Like, if you think of your imagination as a muscle in your brain... I mean, for most of us, that muscle is so pitifully atrophied. Um, we, we don't even have to use our imagination anymore because technology does it for us. Yeah, when was the last time you did some really serious imaginative work? It's, ter- it's a, a bit tragic because we're the only creatures who've been given the gift of imagination. We are the only ones in all of the world, as far as I know, who have the capacity to visualize things that aren't present. But that ability and that capacity, if the truth were known, is, is horribly underutilized in us. C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, talks about how as a young man, he read a novel, a fairy tale, written by the Scottish author, his favorite author, George MacDonald. Uh, MacDonald was a Christian. The, the title of the novel was Fantast. It's a, f- a fantasy fairy romance that you know, doesn't mention Christ or the church or the Bible. It's just it's a fairy tale. 
And Lewis read this book before he became a Christian, and, and he said that in essence, it was that book, Fantast, that unlocked my imagination. As I read through the story, quote, it felt like a bright shadow of holiness was emanating from the pages. This, this sense of a bright shadow coming out of, out of the book into the real world and resting there, transforming things for a moment. And he goes on to explain that he really believes it was through the reading of that, that fa- fairy tale that his imagination was baptized. He uses the exact language. My imagination was baptized. By that, he means his imagination was Christianized. He wasn't even a Christian yet, but he, he had, through the writings of George MacDonald, uh, sensed what it's going to be like when the glory of God descends upon this place. Uh, and that's how Paul talks about it. He talks about it in terms of glory, like there's a glory bomb that explodes here. Um, and it, after that glory bomb goes off, the trees clap their hands, the, the mountains burst into, into song. And what he, we're supposed to do is we're, we're supposed to imagine what that world will look like and sound like and feel like. We're to imagine what kind of tingle is supposed to travel down our spines we are to imagine how good it will feel to feel as though we are as every bit as much loved as the only begotten Son of God. Imagine what it's going to be like to be loved as much as Jesus. If you're an artist, I really believe one of your responsibilities, if you have creative ability, uh, capacities, if you're a Christian painter, a Christian writer, a Christian sculptor, a Christian musician, a Christian photographer, one of your responsibilities is to baptize and touch people's imaginations, either consciously or subconsciously. You are, you are here to use your abilities to help people sense what is yet to come. Um, that's why I chose the Van Gogh picture for the front of the bulletin this week. Did you think that was a little strange? You walk in and you see the banks of the, oh, Brian helped me with my French, Seine, thank you, the Seine in the spring. Uh, what I loved about this painting is you, you look at it and you can, you can almost, it, it, hints, it hints at what the new world will be like when it bursts alive. Now maybe the new world, I've, I kind of quibbled, like maybe should this picture have been a little more green? But I, but it's kind of yellowish, and I associate yellow and gold with glory. <laughs> There's like a glory bomb that has gone off, and it's transforming this place. See, we're not going to just leave this world behind. This world is going to be transformed into what it was, what it was supposed to be. Lewis, in his la- the book The Last Battle, uh, does such a good job of uh, kind of framing this for us. So you remember at the end of the last battle, the kids are mourning, they're, they're mourning old Narnia. They're no longer going to be able to ever be in Narnia again. Narnia is, is um, going by the wayside. They don't realize they're about to step into a new Narnia. And here's what Diggory says to Peter. He says, listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of, but that was not the real Narnia. 
It was only a shadow or a copy of the real one. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia is the new is a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looks as if it means more. I just love how you said that. It looks as if it means more. I can't describe it any better than that. It was the unicorn who summed up, as they're on the verge of entering into the new Narnia, the unicorn who summed up what everyone had begun to feel. He stamped his forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, this is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. This is my real country. I belong here. The reason why we love the old at Narnia is that it sometimes looks a little like this. And there it is. Lewis is capturing the biblical theology of the old and the new earth. He says, our world is a shadowlands. It is a, a copy of something that once was the Garden of Eden and what will be the new earth. Again, it's not that we're going to leave this world behind. No, this world, is, is, this world gives us foretastes and glimpses at the next. I mean, when you see the Alps... When you, the Amazon rainforest, the Serengeti Plain, all of these are rough sketches of the new earth that will one day be released from its bondage to decay. And um, you say, well, how is that going to happen? It's going to happen by fire. Is that shocking? Peter, in his second epistle, Second Peter, is it Second Peter chapter 3? Somewhere in there, Peter speaks of the heavens and the earth um, going through some type of fire. You know, some modern people, modern readers uh, have interpreted that to mean that Peter is prophesying like thermonuclear war someday and there's going to be some great apocalypse, but he's not. He's saying that there's going to be a refining process that comes over all of the universe. A refining process which burns away sin, eliminates sin permanently. It's almost as if the white-hot glory of God will come back to this earth and explode it. At least that's what I imagine. So, yeah, art, great art, helps us to anticipate it. Um, certainly scriptures, studying the scriptures deeply helps us to anticipate it. You know the other thing that stood out to me? Um, what about Travel. When you go to a brand new place, when, when you step into an Italian villa for the first time, isn't the freshness and the newness of that, isn't that, doesn't it give you just a little bit of the, of the foretaste? Or think about it, if you have ever gone snorkeling before, what was it like for the very first time you put on the goggles and you plunged underneath the water? You entered into a world you, you really were just blown away by. Uh, travel has a way of uh, exci- igniting it. Um, new, all things new. You think of it, you're a U2 fan. What was it like the first time you heard Joshua Tree? Uh, food. What is it like the first time this happened to me about a month ago? The very first time I ate Pad Thai. You know, where, is that, where has it been all my life? That was amazing. But when we hear a great new piece of music... When we, when we taste a new plate of food that we've never tasted, 
when you fall in love with the absolute right person, whenever we see beauty in water, wind, flower, deer, man, woman, or child, we catch a glimpse of what will be. We are getting a hint of the glory yet to come. And you must imagine this. It's like, there's a command. Imagine it. Because imagination fuels hope. Frederick Nietzsche, the German atheistic philosopher, once sneered that hope, he said, hope is the worst of all evils because it only serves to prolong man's torments. Now, hope is the voice that whispers to us, all things are possible. And the gospel is a story of hope invading a despairing world. And you can, you can begin to feel more hope by merely imagining more, biblically imagining more. And I, I'll, I'll say one more thing. Let me conclude with a quote from Dallas Willard. He writes this, I meet many faithful, I meet many faithful Christians who are deeply disappointed with how their lives have turned out which that might describe us, um, deeply disappointed with how their lives have turned out. Sometimes it's a simply a matter of how they experience aging, which they take to mean that they no longer have a future, and often uh, what they had wanted to accomplish in life due to circumstances or wrongful decisions and actions by others, they did not. Here's the key. Much of the distress of these good people comes from a failure to realize that their life still lies before them. Now, they may be coming to the end of some of their present, but a far greater part of their lives still lies ahead. When we say things, and I, I caught myself saying it this week, you know, I'm 42, we had our kids early, uh, my kids are just flying out of the nest, I, all my kids are going to be gone within six years, I think, or so, um, Hopefully. <laughs> but I, we, Aaron and I were driving along. We had some reflection time. And, and we're, this sounds pretty awfully pessimistic. But we say these things, don't we? We say, there's not a whole lot left to look forward to in life. You know, a lot of those big benchmarks that you just get excited for, like a lot of those have, have passed by me, right? There's not much more to look forward to. Well, no, that's not true. When we think that our best days are behind us, no, that's not true. But when we think, uh, you know, we've only lived something along the lines of one billionth of our lives. You've only lived one billionth of your life so far. Uh, You're not past your prime. (laughs) You're not past your prime. I know it's trite to say, what, is, what if uh, the best is yet to come? But what if you believed that? What if you imagined that? Friends, all creation is groaning. They're anticip- it's anticipating new birth. All creation is waiting for the moment when God says, these are my kids. Um, before you and I bring home a newborn baby from the hospital, what do we do? We always prepare a place for them, right? We, we get a room, we pick the right paint color, we decorate it perfectly, we get the crib, we get the stuffed animals, we get all the toys. What kind of place can we expect our Father to have prepared for us when he's not limited by budget or creativity? 
If that's what we do for our newly born sons and daughters, what will happen when we are reborn? If parents love to create a room like that, we need to stop acting as though the resurrected world were a myth. We need to keep imagining it. Just as an ocean fish in an aquarium wasn't made for that little glass box, they were made for a great ocean, their instincts tell them that. Their instincts tell them that their true home is something far more vast and wonderful than than the fish had ever yet imagined. Well, it's time to change that. By God's grace in this Easter's tide, you... um, will imagine the glorious, never-ending possibilities that are awaiting the children of God. Amen.